0: The rings, please. Oh, man, that's not a pre-cl- uh, you know, kind of precursor to the sermon, just so you know. There's something about watching those epic fail montages you just can't look away but when you think about failure and like true epic fails they're not funny in fact they're really painful in fact how we work through our failures has a profound impact upon our lives and and I thought we would kind of look at failure from the opposite side of things Um, I want to talk about one of the biggest failures in the Bible in my opinion and that was Samson You might remember Samson, he's the strong guy you learned about in Sunday school, and he beat up all the bad guys, and he had the long hair, and that's where his strength came from. You might remember some of that if you went to church as a kid. I want to give you a little bit of background upon him, but before he was born, Samson was set apart. He was set apart for God's purposes. In fact, he made a promise to God along with his mom that we'd never cut his hair, we'd never drink alcohol, never touch anything unclean. And today's scripture picks up with Samson's second wife, Delilah. And Delilah, she had been pestering Samson. You see, she was a Philistine and she wanted to know where his strength came from, what the secret was to his strength. And she would pester him and he would lie to her and say something. and Then she would say, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Then he would get up and beat all up the Philistines. And this kept happening over and over. And then Delilah, she just put together this huge sob story. I'm your wife. You don't love me. You don't trust me. And we're all thinking, duh, Samson. Come on, man. Come on. But no, Samson finally gives in and tells her that if she cuts his hair, that that is the symbol of God's presence and strength in his life. And sure enough, That's exactly what happens. That's where our scripture picks up in Judges 16, verse 20. You can turn there. If you would, we stand in honor of reading God's word. Now, you might be wondering why we make people stand. It's not just so that you're awake right before the preacher starts preaching. It's because we base everything we do on God's word. We believe that the word of God is the most powerful, significant revelation of God to us. And that's what we stand on. Here we go in verse 20. Then Delilah called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Samson awoke from his sleep and thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Then the Philistines seized him, gouged out his eyes, took him down to Gaza. Binding him with bronze shackles, they set him to grinding grain in the prison. But the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And when the people saw Samson, they praised their God, saying, they probably sang this, Our God has delivered our enemy into our hands, the one who laid waste our land and multiplied our slain. And while they were in high spirits, they shouted, Bring out Samson to entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he performed for them. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, Samson's failure, it's hard to imagine a worse failure than that. That's like true epic failure. And the failures that you faced in your life surely aren't as bad as Samson's. And we have all know what it's like to experience failure, whether it's losing a job or flunking out of school or ending a marriage or and a whole host of other things. But what God wants to do in your life and in my life is he wants to help us work through our failures so that we can find strength and courage and hope and growth through that experience. But if you're like me, I just, I don't like doing that. It's not very fun to work through my failures. In fact, it's kind of torture. And our culture kind of embraces that philosophy as well and it's kind of seen in how we deal with a lot of things in life but especially relationships let's take marriage for example it's common knowledge that about 50 percent of marriages end in divorce well you know practice makes perfect right so maybe second marriages would be better well no second marriages they have a divorce rate of like 67 percent and then third marriages it's even worse it's about 75 percent of third marriages end in divorce Now. I'm not giving those statistics in case it's your second or third marriage trying to scare you or anything, but I think it points to our resistance as a culture to deal with our failures. And I want you to realize this as this point comes up on the screen. It's something that we have to grab a hold of. It's that failure is an event, never a person. So if you're filling in the good old blanks there, failure is an event, never a person. That means that you are not a failure. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write your name down in that blank. Like if I was taking notes, I would say, Glenn is not a failure. Because I, God wants you to walk out of here today knowing that you are not a failure. That your shortcomings don't define who you are. That you are more than your actions. In fact, who you are and who you become is of vastly more significance than what you've done. And you know, I've had my share of failures over the years. As a kid, going through elementary school, there was not one math time test that I passed. I never completed those stupid things. I mean, I ended up doing okay in school, but, you know, all of you math whizzes didn't even think twice about it. Anyway, but moving on. And even as a kid, I had to see a speech and language pathologist because I stuttered so much. And now you can't get me to shut up. And of course, like a teenager, you know, I wrecked the car like so many other people did. But a failure that is probably more significant for me, that God has really used in my life in a profound way, has to do with my first job. In my first job, I was hired at Union Chapel as the missions pastor here a long, long time ago. And I remember I was so excited. I came here and, and I sensed God's presence in worship And it just really touched me. And then Pastor Greg started preaching. And you know how that goes. I'm like, oh, man, I cannot wait to come here. And then in my interview, you can ask Greg this when he comes back. The presence of God showed up in my interview. And I think, how could it be any better than this? And so as I came as missions pastor, I was so excited. I connected with people and got people all excited about the call that God had placed upon our church to help reach the people of Kazakhstan. And I went at my job with everything I had. And so some things were going well, but there was this huge administrative aspect to my job, which I was clueless about. The only thing I administrated before this was my homework from college and seminary. And so I had to do things like help incorporate a nonprofit 501 501c3 company. I had to help organize a shipment of medical supplies to go on this huge sea container all the way to Kazakhstan. And then find random things like insurance for people who work overseas where there is no healthcare, and on top of that I had to find stuff like a gas powered backpack insecticide sprayer this was all before Google mind you that would have made my job a lot easier if Google had been around sooner so rather than work smarter I just worked harder and you can feel free to laugh at any of this but I want you to know that I helped institute some new policies at Union Chapel for example I was the last person to be hired at Union Chapel who didn't have psychological inventories done on them. And I was the last person to be hired from Union Chapel without a, you know, personality, spiritual gifts as well. So, and needless to say, details were my enemy. And no one but God would ever know all the things I forgot in my first years at Union Chapel. Now this was not one of the reasons I got fired, but it just kind of typifies some of the things that would happen around Glenn in those days and we were sending off our team to Kazakhstan and I knew enough to recruit people to cook the food you know, and decorate the place. Okay, Glenn, you can handle the cake. So we got this big sheet cake, you know, it says, God bless you as you go to Kazakhstan or something like that in the middle. And I brought the cake back and set it out. And then they brought it in the kitchen and one of the ladies came out and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Glenn, did you check the cake? And I'm like, check the cake, like stick my finger in it? No, I didn't (laughs) check the cake. Well, they, I brought me to the cake and I saw these little messages in the corner of the cake and and they were nice, you know, Lord be with you and God with you and God be in you. And the last corner said, God be up you. (laughs) That's where the laughter goes. Yes, yes, that's correct. And so needless to say, we served pieces of cake and not the entire cake at that party. And since then, I've never been asked to organize a party at Union Chapel. <laughs> you know, another time, there's this thing that we used to do. We would, we would have to get together. And every year we had this big evaluation. It was our annual evaluation with a staff parish relations committee. Does all this paperwork? You'd go through the goals that you set from the previous year, go over the goals for the new year. It's where they set your salary, where you're hired and fired typically. And so I did all this work, and uh, you know that's usually done on a Saturday. And and I got this phone call at home, and it was Pastor Greg saying, "Hey, Glenn, what you doing?" I'm like, I'm working on my house. He said, are you coming to your staff parish relations committee meetings? Like, oh, oh. So I got, I got clean and got up there as fast as I could. But bigger than that, I was a fearful leader. I was the king of excuses. If something bad happened, I could tell you bajillion reasons why it happened, and none of them were me. And I would take credit sometimes from my team. And I'd been at this job for three years, and one of the things that was challenging for me to see was that I wasn't necessarily wired up to do a lot of that job. In fact, most of that job wasn't a good fit for me. And so our team leader came back from Kazakhstan and, and I was told that, Glenn, you're not gonna be doing missions work anymore at Union Chapel. It's like, okay. And we need to find out what God's called you to do and maybe where he's calling you to serve. I'm like, okay. And I really felt God's call to be at Union Chapel And I began this waiting part. And let me tell you, friends, that was stressful times for me. Because my wife and I, we had a little baby, and we were working on a house that would make anyone on HGTV wet their britches. I mean, when we bought the house, I had no indoor bathrooms, just craziness, craziness, craziness. And all that stuff is going through my mind. And I do feel called to Union Chapel, and, and so I'm waiting. One month turned into three months and then six months. And then a whole year into it, yeah, you're feeling the love, aren't you? A whole year into it, I sit down with my supervisor and a coworker, people I love and respect so very much. And we're processing all these challenging issues. Like, Glenn, are you called to ministry? Are you sure this is what God has wired you up for? And, and in the middle of all that, I'd been processing my fear because I knew I was terrified. I was afraid to get up and walk away. I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know if I could find another ministry position and just for so many other things. And, and I didn't know if it was my call to Union Chapel that I was hanging on to or my fear of leaving. And I finally had to lay it down. And I felt God prompting me just to say, I guess it's time for me to move on. And I kid you not, I have not heard the voice of God very clearly many times. This was one of those times when I clearly heard the voice of God and the second I said, it's time for me to move on, God said, okay, Glenn, I want you to stay. And inside, I was laughing. I was like, that's really funny because I pretty much just resigned. <laughs> <laughs> but over the next few months, um, you know, I, that, that process just, you know, be, I was hired as associate pastor at Union Chapel. And it hasn't been rosy ever since, but it's been so much better. And God has really used that to shape and mold my character. I hated that time. I would not go back there for anything, but I also wouldn't trade it for anything because my fear of failure and my fear of what other people thought of me, God just used that to rip that out of me and to set me free from that. And there are lessons about leadership that I use to this day that I learned then. It's, it was such such a freeing thing, such a freeing thing. So I want you to know that I'm not a failure and neither are you. I want you to see this as it comes up on the screen. We have this natural response to failure and it's guilt. We all know what it's like to feel guilty, but the better response to failure is repentance. You see, guilt, it forces you to focus on the past. I think a good picture of guilt is a dog's choker collar that's about 12 inches long and one end is wrapped around your neck and the other is mounted right in the middle of your failure. And what guilt does is it doesn't allow you to look away. It doesn't allow you to look up and it keeps reminding you that this is who you are and you have a tendency to repeat that failure over and over. Repentance is actually the exact opposite. Did you know that our youth ministry is called 180? And 180 is built on the definition of repentance because repentance literally means to turn around, to turn away, to turn away from your failure, to turn away from your sin and turn to God. And as we process, I want us to really see the differences between guilt and repentance. And I want you to know that no matter where you are in your relationship with God, this will help you as you process your own failures. And so when you look at guilt, when you look at it from the guilty perspective, guilt traps you. It traps you in your sin. But what repentance does, it's a catalyst for change. It inspires you. And guilt, it brings shame. What repentance brings is it brings hope. Guilt will multiply your fears. In fact, guilt is the power behind worry. What repentance does is it gives you courage. This is a huge thing that guilt does. It isolates you. I can't tell anybody. I can't let anyone know what I'm dealing with or what I'm struggling with. No one will understand me. No one else has ever been through this. What repentance does is it connects you with other people because now you have the power of God, the freedom of God to find strength, wholeness and health in the midst of that failure. And so ask yourself, what does God want me to learn from my failures? Whether they were last week or years ago, what does God want me to learn? What is God teaching me? And the most important question is this. What does God want me to change? Because if we're struggling with something, if we're dealing with a failure, we can't keep doing the same thing and expect a different result. And so if you're struggling with your relationships, you're going to have to start relating differently. If you're struggling with your finances and they're upside down, you're going to have to save and spend and manage your money differently. And the same thing is true if you're a parent. Maybe some things you've used with one of your children is not working very well with your other child. You're gonna have to parent differently to get a different result. And so some of the changes I made, you know, in me were just logistical changes. Like I actually learned how to be organized. Now some of you, you're naturally organized. You really are. And I just can't stand you. That's really not true because my wife, she's naturally organized. It was actually a team effort between my wife and the organization queen here at, the, at Union Chapel at that time, Chrissy Bright. They helped build this system for me, and then I had to tweak it even more. And just so you know, this is the only reason I still have a job, this little reminder system here. It saved my bacon so many times. But bigger things happened in the midst of that. I became more concerned with what God thought about me than what other people thought about me. I began to see my value in who I was as a person rather than what I did and accomplished. And I went out of my way to accept responsibility. And I also passed on credit whenever I could. I want you to know that God will use failure in your life to make your life better. Which brings up, Our third big thought today, it's this as you see it on the screen. Your destiny is bigger than any failure because God's got this awesome purpose for your life. And the good thing, the good news is, is that you can't mess it up. In fact, this point is the primary reason I chose this passage of scripture about Samson. Now think about Samson. I mean, the boy was set up. from Before he was conceived, he was set apart to be used by God. I mean, there hasn't been a man since him who was as strong as he was. But what did Samson do? He made his life all about what he wanted, all about what brought him pleasure in the moment, and he ignored the advice of others. He just had to marry a Philistine wife. The first one ended in tragedy, so he had to do it again. And then he touched things he shouldn't touch. He did things he shouldn't do. He drank things he shouldn't drink. One failure after another. So many terrible, terrible choices. And then he ended up captured, blinded. And then he used the very gift God had given him, walking in circles, pushing a grinding stone to grind grain, doing the work of a mule. And then on top of all that, he was an object of shame. And not only that, he was an object of shaming God, the one whom he was supposed to be serving. And as they brought Samson out, I want to give you a picture of, the, of Dagon's temple. Now, it was probably built more like a coliseum. And so the Bible says that there were 3,000 people standing on the roof watching Samson perform. Now, that doesn't count all the people who were sitting in the stands in the VIP seating. So in the midst of all this, after Samson had performed for them, And they're mocking him and mocking his God. Samson prayed this prayer. Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please God, strengthen me just once more. And then Samson reached toward those two support pillars. And he said, let me die with the Philistines. And he pushed with all of his might and down came the temple on all sides of the rulers and people in it. And the Bible says this, that Samson killed many more when he died than while he lived. What was God's purpose for Samson? What was God's destiny for Samson? Not even Samson could mess up the destiny that God had for him. And the same is true for you and for me. God's plan for you is bigger than your failure. You can't mess it up. Have you ever had this thought, how many bad things can someone do before God won't receive them, before God won't forgive them, before God won't restore them? And the truth is, is that no one knows. Because no one has done so much and then come to Jesus with a repentant heart and have him reject them and turn them away. No one. You see, somehow we think that our failures, they disqualify us. And the devil likes to drop this little thought in your mind that, yeah, you know, he can help so-and-so get better. He can help Glenn with his failures, but God can't help me. And that is a huge, huge lie. Jesus Christ, the only begotten son of God, he was beaten, he was shamed, he was tortured, he bore your sin on the cross. The Bible even says that God turned his back on him. And later on in the New Testament, we learn that Jesus descended into hell for three days. And I believe that he took every single thing that we could have ever received from the hands of Satan upon himself for you and for me. That's what Jesus did for you. And do you really think that your failure or your sin above all the people to ever live could stop the saving, redeeming power of Jesus Christ? Then you've been lied to. You have a grossly over-exaggerated view of your own failure because nothing can stop the saving power of Jesus Christ when we come to him. Nothing, nothing at all. And I love this. As, As Samson prays this prayer, it's a huge shift. And perhaps for the first time in Samson's life, he put God first. He put God before his own selfish desires. And Samson knew this was it. If I push these pillars down, it's over. And he sacrificed his life for the destiny that God called him to. He laid his life down for God. And God has that same call on you and on me. Now, not for us to literally die at the very end of our lives, but for us to lay down our lives every day. You see, God wants you to push down those pillars that are keeping you and him apart. He wants you to push down those pillars that have been causing you to circle back between the failures that you've been struggling with for so many years. And he wants to set you free. And as you die to yourself, you will find the life-giving power of Jesus rising up inside of you this statement really helped me just listen to it to the degree that you lay your life down will be the degree that you experience the life-giving power of Jesus and I want you to look at your failure kind of from a big picture perspective because your failure is way 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 bigger than you God has plans to use your failure in the lives of others Your failure might be the gateway to somebody else's freedom and your struggle might be the very thing that gives someone else the courage to open up and ask for help. Don't you see the beauty in this? This is like one of my favorite things about the redemptive power of Jesus Christ because the very thing that the devil put in your life, the very failure that he wanted to use to destroy you and tear you apart, God takes that and not only does he remove it, but he makes you stronger with it. And then he uses that very thing to help set somebody else free. Glory to God. Now that is a powerful savior right there, isn't it? Man, man, yes, yes. Glory to God. You know, when you process failure in a healthy way, it just gives you credibility you can't get any other way. You know how this is. If you're struggling with something, if you're failing with something, you wanna talk to somebody who's been there and done that. You wanna talk to somebody who's worked through that. And maybe you think back, well, was was my failure God's will? Well, no, but will God use it? Absolutely, if you let him. As we bring this in to a close, I wanna talk about what are the pillars in your life? There's space in your notes there. What are the pillars in your life? And how will you push them down? I want to challenge you to write this out. Maybe you're like me and your pillar is fear. Fear of failure, fear of rejection. And you just need to push that over. Push that over. Trust him in the midst of that. Or maybe that pillar that you're dealing with is anger. Maybe you need to get help, open up to a pastor or a counselor or some friends. And maybe you need start with a huge apology and then hold, have someone hold you accountable in the midst of that. Or maybe you love control. You don't want to step out, especially if you don't know how things are going to work out. Because you want to make sure that you can control how things work. And, and all that has held you back. And God wants you to push that pillar of pride down and trust him. Turn away from your failure and turn toward God and watch as God shows you that you might be down, but you're not out. You might feel like a failure, but he's not done with you. He's going to accomplish his purposes in you. And just maybe you're like me and you're familiar with the pillars that you push down. I think I just pushed this pillar down a month ago. I think I pushed this pillar down last year. And however many times that pillar comes up, what do you think God wants you to do to that thing? He wants you to push it over. <laughs> push over the pillar because you're not disqualified just because you're a repeat offender. And I'm testimony of that. I'm proof of that. I think Proverbs twenty four sixteen might encourage you. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. This is 1 Timothy two thirteen. This is my memory verse. If we are faithless, anybody identify with that? <laughs> If we are faithless, God is faithful. He cannot disown himself. And the reason he can't disown himself is because you've given yourself to him and he can't disown himself. Isn't that good? If we're faithless, God is faithful. 1 Timothy 2.13. That helps me, man. Woo. And so before we pray, I wanna ask you this question. What do you think Jesus thinks about you? We actually know. We know what Jesus thinks about you because of how he interacted with people. There's this guy named Zacchaeus. There's this mob around Jesus. And Zacchaeus, he had done just about everything bad under the sun, you can imagine. He was a short guy. He couldn't see Jesus, so he climbed up in this tree. In the middle of all the craziness of the mob around Jesus, Jesus looks up and he calls Zacchaeus by name. He says, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree because I'm going to your house. God's calling your name. Maybe you're not like Zacchaeus. Maybe you're more like Peter because the failure that you're dealing with is something that you did after you gave your life to Christ. You know, Peter, he denied Jesus three times right before Jesus was crucified. He even cursed in the midst of it. And to make things worse, Peter and Jesus made eye contact immediately after he denied Jesus for the third time. What do you think Jesus said to Peter the first time they were alone together? We actually know. It was Jesus and Peter sitting around a fire. And Jesus looked at Peter and didn't call him by his nickname that he gave him, which was Peter. He said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And for every single time that Peter denied Jesus, Jesus called him by name. Jesus called, Simon, son of John, he said that three times, and Jesus is calling you by name. Every time you've ever denied Jesus, every time you've ever pushed him back, every time you've put your own desires and pleasures before him, he is calling your name. Come to me, because you are not a failure. As you repent and make changes, you will experience freedom, and God has a plan for you that is infinitely bigger than your shortcomings. And God will use your newfound freedom to set other people free. Let's pray, church. Lord, as we bow our heads before you, we just recognize uh, this national day of prayer that our president has called. And and we do, we, we lift up all the victims from Hurricane Harvey in Houston and all over the Gulf Coast. And we ask for your healing to touch them, for your blessing, your comfort, and your help. There's so many challenging things going. It just seems daunting, God. And we we ask for your blessing in those circumstances. Lord, we also pray for us as a nation that you would draw us together. But most importantly, that you would draw our nation to you, God, that there'd be the power of your spirit would sweep across our nation and that people would experience you in a new way. Lord, as we think about our own failures, we wanna listen to you, Jesus. Do we have any unfinished business with you? What lessons do we need to learn? What about our life needs to change? Thank you, Jesus, that you accept us just the way that we are, that you meet us where we are, and that you call us by name. Thank you that we are not a failure. And so we look to those pillars in our lives and we push over the pillar of pride in Jesus' name and we recognize that you are our source. The pillar of anger comes down today in Jesus' name as we find peace and freedom and control. And the pillars of rejection and fear, let them come down in Jesus' name as we fix our hope on you. Maybe your pillar is doubt. Maybe you've been wondering if Jesus is real, All this stuff in the Bible could actually be true. And maybe it's time for your change. And maybe it's time for you to commit yourself to Jesus. Maybe you don't know what's going to happen to you when you die. You don't know if you're going to heaven. And and you really want the strength and power of Jesus. And you don't feel like you have that right now. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? We want to pray in a minute. Just raise your hand. You can know for sure, yes. Yes. Good, good. Well, church, no one at Union Chapel prays alone, so would you pray out loud with me? Dear Jesus, thank you for dying and paying for my sins. Thank you for rising from the dead. I confess my failures to you, I place my life in your hands. Thank you for forgiving me and setting me free. Thank you for making me whole and changing my life. I promise to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen.